if things continue in the way that this book warns, we're fucking dead. And the way that we're seeing some of this shit play out in America. Yeah. This recording could be played in our trial because James and I are going to be, you know, first against the wall, as they say in this book. Uh, we we would be one of those people hanging from the Harvard wall, potentially. Yeah. And honestly, come get me. Yeah. Welcome, friends, to episode 197 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood is kind of a legend. It's a name I've heard a ton. The Handmaid's Tale is a a book I've heard about. Um, I know that there's this Hulu series that came out once we started the podcast, and it's one that I would have watched otherwise, but I made myself not watch because I thought we might cover it. Here we are, finally getting to it. Um, I finally get to read this novel. I, I, I can see why its reputation is so massive. Um, this does seem like a modern classic, and um, it is incredibly affecting to read this considering the political climate we're in right now in this country. I first experienced this story when, as it was coming out as the TV show during the Trump administration, during a yep. lot of like cultural upheaval i feel like a lot of social uh issues were being brought up and and basically being challenged and and i think people saw the show at a time when they were also seeing some of some similar things happening in our community and honestly unfortunately still to this day as rel- as recently as the things going on in texas um this this story just reading it right now all i could think about was texas currently yeah so at the time we're recording this, um, the news coming out of Texas is that there has been this uh, just draconian, horrific abortion rule uh, law passed um, that includes like $10,000 bounties for neighbors reporting on each other, um, just of people getting abortions. It's like really messed up. And then the Supreme Court has let it stand, which is being challenged now, um, I, as I understand it, um, I don't know all the legal, you know, things surrounding it, but it's being challenged. Um, but it's just, it's awful. And I, I am someone who has stayed abreast with these issues and like, I, I understand them to an extent, but this book just does a great job of outlining sort of where these sorts of things can lead. It helps me understand even more than I already did just how dangerous um, this sorts of stuff is. And um, I don't know. It's not like I'm someone who needed this because I fully like I get it. But uh, I don't know. It it just helped me define it in a way. It helped me to see it in a way that um, I hadn't fully thought about. Um, so I, I, I'm really glad I read this book. This book is, um, one of those things that you read that I'll never forget. Like it, it is going to stay with me. It is, uh, just a powerful piece of work, uh, brilliantly written, um, horrifying. I, I think this is 
the scariest novel I've read um, in a long time. Um, and that's funny considering it's not technically a horror piece, but it's so scary because it is so plausible. And then just just the horrific things that happen in it um, are are really affecting. I don't know. So when I started reading this, I was expecting what I've experienced with this story so far to have been an update on something because I realized if you can hear that, there's a lot of there's a storm going on outside right now. So there's thunder. I've been enjoying the sounds of thunderstorms <laughs> coming from James's audio. Uh, I don't hear a lot of it here in Oregon, but uh, yeah, you might hear some some thunder. <laughs> So anyway, um, I ex- I assumed that with a novel coming out in 1985, there was a lot of updates to the story that were made for the TV show, and I'm I was so surprised as I and it tends to be the case honestly when I have seen something first and I go to read it how much it was already on the page. It okay. is almost exact. I mean, I'm sure that people who are Handmaid's Tale experts will, will tell me all the reasons why it's different, but a lot was already there and. Um, yeah, I like I said before, I couldn't help but think about the things going on in Texas and the things that what what the like handmaids outfits have come to represent too, like within yeah. social issues and stuff. You see them popping up anytime there's social injustice now, and it's a symbol to represent like this is where we can end up. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it is so horrifying and and incredibly powerful. Like you were saying, it it like when I watched the show for the first time because I have to keep going back to that because like I said, a lot of this is similar. Um, it's so affecting and it's also from the perspective of someone who's being suppressed by it in an internal way. The show does that really well, but this book, again, it was on the page in the way that we're flowing from like flashbacks to, to see like what went on to end up here. And then the like introspective thoughts of like what this life is like in comparison to old life. Um, and the way that it flowed, the narrative was like the structure of it was very loose. I feel like it was kind of, flowing yeah so it was uh not chronologically uh presented it kind of jumps around a lot in time um to different moments whether those be flashbacks to the life before um to just different moments um and that sort of scattershot approach does feel very cinematic to me because movies often do this sort of stuff right right um but i mean I, books do it too and, and i think it does it's done effectively here there's also some metafiction sort of gamesmanship going on here that <laughs> helps sort of situate this which we can talk about more when we get into full spoiler discussions um, we're keeping it fairly general here um but I, I love that stuff. I think it works really well thematically and it works really well to give you the story in a way that is most emotionally resonant, um, even if it's not necessarily chronologically the way it played out. Yeah. If that makes sense. The world building in this world, um, it's it's interesting because it does feel like something that could be realistic. But at the same time, it does feel like a fantasy dystopian sort of sci-fi story with things that are recognizable, but at the same time feel so alien as well. Like we see this obvious like hierarchy of class. And then there's this twisting of like biblical things that's going on that I found to be really interesting within this world, too. And I talked about uh, way back in like Good Omens, I talked about how like having something like a religion that is universal for people within that are at least familiar with those those themes 
how like it immediately has a certain baggage that comes with it. And in this, there's already a certain baggage that's coming with whatever form of Christianity or whatever they're twisting. And I, and the thing that, that I really like about it is that it's, it's showing what can happen when ideologies are twisted to, to be the, the driving force behind groups of people or just, you know, just mobs of people. And when like power is given to those ideologies, whether they're right or wrong, uh, people at the top can twist them in these ways. And I, I don't know, I just found it to be obviously horrifying and scary and too real in ways because you can see it happening all around us. But, uh, yeah, you know, powerful world building in 1985 too. like, I assume these, these, uh, things have always been issues. Absolutely. I mean, she was reacting to what things she was seeing at the time. I think this is during the Reagan administration. Um, I don't know how much extra stuff your copy ended up having, um, I had a physical copy and I listened to the audiobook for some. The audiobook version I listened to was like a, had a cast to it and was a full production. Um, oh, had wow. some additional uh, follow-up stuff at the end, with, including mm-hmm. a, an afterword by Margaret Atwood herself, where she talked about some of these things. Um, and I'll touch on some of the things she said uh, here or there. I, I don't have the direct quotes written out for all of them, but speaking to what you just mentioned, she has said she only included details in this novel that have historical precedent or are happening right now when she wrote it. Um, She wanted everything to have that realism to it. She didn't want to invent any sorts of um, uh, like repression or even torture or um, any of that. She wanted it all to be real. So like every little detail has some sort of historical context or thing for it. Um, in, in different places around the world. Um, she talks about how the subjugation and control of women are is a facet of every oppressive regime and how she she like studied a lot of like how it's done and you know different places around the world that have done it and um, modeled a lot of that here. Um, I think a lot of people have identified the similarities to uh, slavery in America and how she sort of sets up a, a you know sexual slavery that happens here in this book um it, it it's it's really fascinating to me that she went through all this work to make sure that it has these real world counterparts and i think that's one of the reasons why it feels so real and it feels so prescient um and we see it playing out and uh it was in one of the essays i read um but i agree with it and that's that you know a modern classic, an instant classic, um, can be defined by the way that it continues to be more resonant over time and how the handmaid's tale arrived and was resonant. And then just over time has become even more important. It it continues to speak to us and, and reading it now, it's like, this could have been written, you know, last year and it would have been like, wow, they're really talking about everything that's going on in America right now. And it was written in 1985, the year I was born, which is just wild. Yeah. And that leads me to my experience with the show was I didn't know it was based on a book when I was watching it. And I assumed that it was in reaction to things that were happening in in the Trump administration in ways. Yeah. And so for me to like have that all, I don't know, come back around in that way. I mean, like, like we've talked about with Texas, it's like the Roe v. Wade. I looked into some of this stuff. Roe v. Wade was in like 1973. 
mm-hmm. which which marked a period of time that basically said the the Supreme Court guaranteed women's right to terminate a pregnancy before around the 24 week mark. And that has continually been challenged, obviously, like since then, yeah. there's been people challenging it. And now we're seeing a group of people in Texas, a group of lawmakers that were able to get something passed and and basically, like you said, put bounties on people who are getting. Pre- and then I, I think the the for them, the, the current limit now would be like six weeks or something yeah. like that, which is like before women typically even know that they're pregnant. And yep. there's no option if there's a traumatic uh, situation that's gone on or anything like that yeah. for an abortion. No, so, no exemption for rape right. or incest or anything like that. Right. Like it. So yeah. it's horrifying. And, and like, this is the kind of stuff that you can see where it's just like, we're seeing women rights taken away from them, their own body. They're yeah. being told Act- what they're actively can seeing do. it happening before. And us. that's happening today. So it's, it's really, yeah. Um, I don't know. Really so scary stuff. <laughs> this is like, yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like this is going to be a fairly heavy episode. Um, as, as you can already tell, um, before we get further along that road, I do want to pause for a moment. Um, we are coming up on our 200th episode of Ink to Film. Um, in fact, I think at the end of our Handmaid's Tale coverage, uh, we will arrive at it, which is a few episodes away from here. And we want to have like a celebration. And um, one of the things we want to do is James and I are going to talk about and force ourselves to kind of choose some of our favorite episodes that we've recorded. We've talked about favorite projects. We've talked about best adaptations, but we haven't really talked about our favorite episodes of the podcast. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to outline some ways in which our lives have changed over the last four years of recording this. Um, And uh, those are two things we wanted to reflect on, but we also wanted to engage with our listeners and, uh, talk with you about it too. And, and and specifically I'd love it if people could write in and our email address is ink to film at gmail.com and let us know um, maybe, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be exact, but around how long you've been listening and how your lives have changed since you, since you've been listening, it could be anything like, did you start going to college? Did you graduate? Did you start a new job? Did you move like anything like that? We're just, we'd be curious to hear, um, so include include some of that if you're willing, if you want. Um, and then also a favorite episode or a favorite moment, even if you can't think of a specific episode from the podcast, if you'd be willing to share it with us, we'd love to hear that. And then we'll read these, um, as many of them as we can, on the episode themselves. So we just also ask that you try and keep it fairly short, just a few sentences. That way uh, we can you know talk about as many of them as possible. Um, that would be awesome if we could get that sort of feedback. We'd love to hear it from you. Uh, our email address is inktofilm at gmail.com. Just send those on to us uh, over the next couple weeks, um, and then we, we can uh, use them to, to help us celebrate 200 episodes. Yeah, and thank you to everybody who's you know consistently listened, popped in every now and again. Uh, we wouldn't still be doing it if people weren't listening. So thank you yep. all for listening. All right, so back into Handmaid's Tale. Uh do we want to talk about Margaret Atwood a little bit? Are we ready here? Or do we have some more general thoughts we want to get into? Yeah, I would love to hear more. I, I, th- I, I've heard that she's written other Handmaid's Tale related books, so I'm like really curious to hear like what she's done outside of that and who she is as a person. So she has, uh, just because you set me up for it, 2019, uh, a book called The Testaments was released that is actually a f- sequel to The Handmaid's Tale um, by Margaret Atwood. Um, 
Is that the only sequel? That's the only other book? It's the only official sequel, yeah, that I can find. Um, And it just came out in 2019. Just to say the show continues on uh, with a lot more stuff than what's in this first book. Right. That is one thing I'd heard is that that they are sort of taking liberties and and going beyond what's in the book, Um, which, you know, some people don't like. Uh, I, I get why people might not like that i haven't seen it so i can't comment on it myself um we'll, we'll get there maybe we'll do like a season two as a bonus episode or something because if the show's really good uh, you know i'm probably gonna want to keep watching yeah. um so margaret eleanor atwood is a canadian poet novelist literary critic essayist teacher environmental activist and inventor since 1961 she has published 18 books of poetry 18 novels, 11 books of nonfiction, nine collections of short stories, eight children's books, two graphic novels, and a number of small press editions of both poetry and fiction. Atwood has won numerous awards and honors for her writing, including two Booker Prizes, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Governor General's Award, the Franz Kafka Prize, Princess of Asturias Awards, and the National Book Critics and Penn Center USA Lifetime Achievement Awards. Um, I am so a lot of awards. I don't even know I, I, some of these I'm not familiar with, but Arthur C. Clarke Award is specifically given for science fiction. There's a lot of discourse about whether or not this is science fiction that Atwood has weighed in on, which I think is is kind of interesting for like genre nerds who like to talk about the distinctions in genres. Um, this is kind of a difficult book to categorize in that way. Um, I, the, it seems like the consensus has come to dystopian feminist novel. But um, you could you can sort of challenge any of these descriptions. Atwood herself over time has challenged um, feminist in the sense that she says that she, um, if I can represent this correctly, she always wants to ask people what they mean by the word feminist when whenever they say that, um, because she's encountered different definitions of it over time. Um, and in one of the one of the quotes I read from her basically said that she's encountered feminism as the sort of thing that would exclude trans women from women's restrooms. And if that's what people mean by feminism, then she doesn't agree with that. So, you know, she's someone who's been involved in this movement for many, many, many years. And, you know, I I see where where we're at in the moment. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't you call it feminism? But like, I understand that there's a long history that I, that I fully don't follow and understand. So um, over time, she's, she's sort of, balked at that suggestion some depending on what you mean by it but anyway i think it's safe to say for whatever that were is worth <laughs> to you <laughs> um that this seems like a feminist novel to me um because to me feminism is just recognizing the humanity in women and you know the the that they should have the freedom to do with their bodies what they want and their lives what they want and i think that's the sort of feminism that atwood agrees with and i read that in some of her quotes yeah we're all uh, feminists here, so uh, in that in that sense, <laughs> you know, it, just because you say that, I, feminism and being an ally and being anti-racist and things like that, like I do want to model those behaviors. I believe in those things. I am a little bit uncomfortable labeling myself that way um, because to me it feels like uh, those those labels are not mine to give to myself. They're something that other marginalized people can maybe give to me if they feel that I deserve it. Um, 
So I, I don't know. Like it feels weird for me to come out and proudly state that I'm a feminist or or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not leading off conversations with I'm a feminist, but I know what you mean. Like I I like I'm not going to put it in my Twitter bio. And like you could have arguments that maybe you should. And, and I fully get that. It's just my own discomfort with the sort of attention. Sometimes it feels like I'm trying to get attention, and I don't yeah. want that. And so and plus I'm I I'm imperfect. You know what I mean? Like I. I it feels like if I were to claim that, I'd also be saying that like I I have arrived and I and the model of, of I'm the, the model of this that, and yeah. I'm comfortable with my designation. Whereas to me, it's always an act of learning and improvement. Um, so that's just where I'm at with it. I don't. Know. My outlook on it is like if someone were to ask me if I thought of myself as a feminist, I would say yes. Right. Well, and um, you know, Atwood. Atwood's example is an interesting one of what do you mean by that? Because that could be a decent follow-up for whoever is asking you that question, because depending on the person, they might mean wildly different things. Yeah, um, definitely. Anyway, we're getting into the woods a little bit here, but uh, this book was immediately uh, popular in the United States. It came out in tw- uh, 1986 in the U.S. Um, and immediately sort of garnered a lot of academic uh, buzz. A lot of people were looking at it and saying... Atwood, so Atwood is this Canadian who's looking at America and telling us what she sees. And a lot of people at the time were like, you know, this is, they wanted to see, like, what does this outsider think of us? And um, Atwood is sort of linking the the, the Puritans and the um, the colonists, right? And, like, the initial founders and their... their um, Christianity and their politics and saying that that is the core of what makes America America and then everything else has been built on that bed and that bed has got a lot of problems and that the Gilead in the in this book is a throwback to those those you know times right like the the, the pilgrims essentially I, I saw someone say that in one of the essays it was like the Revenge of the Pilgrims is like a subtitle for this book or something like that, um, because it, it's it's this throwback to 17th century uh, or 18th century, whatever. Um, and I agree with that. And I, and I think it is really fascinating through that lens. Um, and it's something, again, that we're seeing in, I think, modern conservatism, especially with QAnon and groups like that. It's like the uh, the throwback to the golden era of you know when america was great right and no one can define when that was and what that looked like and ultimately it seems like that goes all the way back to the very founding of america um when women were essentially property and you know slaves obviously were property and people couldn't vote and white men had all the power um, and that is what we see happen in this book, a return to those times. Um, sorry, anyway, I'm getting <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking about bio here. Um, so Atwood is still writing, um, an incredible writer. She's she's had several pieces that have been adapted, which I was I took note of. Um, in particular, her novel Alias Grace, written in 1996, was adapted into a six part 2017 miniseries on Netflix directed by Mary Heron, um, nice. which I, I was like, ooh, there's a little connection. Uh, you know, um, American Psycho director. Um, and uh, I was excited to see that. And apparently it's got like like a 90 plus on Rotten Tomatoes. People really like it. I'd never even heard of it, but apparently it's on Netflix. Um, Great. 
And I was like, dang, that's a, you know, so if, if people would like to hear our thoughts on that, let us know, because I don't know about you. I really enjoyed reading this book, and I think it's it's brilliantly written. Um, Atwood's, Atwood's prose is poetic and gorgeous, and, I mean, she's a poet, so I think that really shows through here. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more I could go into. Um, you know, I, I could talk about how this book is one of the top 50 most banned books in school. Um, a lot of, in, in much like we talked about with uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, um, it is a book that people try and teach, but then it it causes an uproar when, you know, parents find out what their kids are reading. It's got explicit sex in it and stuff like that. Um, also troubling concepts for people who maybe believe some of this stuff. Um, yeah. It's been called anti-religious, um, which Atwood has responded to saying that it's not. Um, she actually sees it as... Uh, I mean, you could see within the book that itself that there are sects of these Catholics and Baptists and, you know, Jews and, and all these different groups that are actually at war with this Gilead country who sort of represents this form of Christian uh, Christianity that is like nameless. It hasn't been defined within the book. Um, and it's because it's kind of this false religion, right? It's more about power and it... Um, she said that this book is a condemnation of religion as used as a front for totalitarianism. And uh, that is specifically what she's sort of taking aim at here, not all religion, um, which I think is a smart distinction and, and I think feels appropriate. I don't think this is a I think this is a perfect time to talk about a certain quote that I wanted to bring up. I don't think it's really a spoiler, so I'm going to give it here. It's it brings up the the Bible verse or whatever of uh blessed are the meek and that that's said by like you know it's something that's like said to the handmaids. And uh but the but the whole quote isn't finished. And I think that's in like the the a huge flag planted in the ground saying like Yes, religion's being twisted, but it's not like necessarily saying that like one religion's bad or anything like that. It's more like these people and anyone really, it's the it's the example that like religion can be used as a tool against its its followers. And so like the the rest of the quote is um for they shall inherit the earth. And so they're basically saying like blessed are the meek. They're saying, "Oh, bless you, handmaid for for all the things you're doing for us." But they're not going to finish it and say for they shall inherit the earth. You're yeah. not going to inherit the earth. It's about who controls information, right? And we see that time and again, these Bible verses. It's only very specific ones. They're not allowed to read the Bible yeah. um, because they're they don't not allowed know to read. What the, what the, they're not allowed to read, period. It's illegal to yeah. read. But like, the you'd think, oh, they can read the Bible. But there are details in there that wouldn't align with the power structure. So they're only read the Bible. And even within that, we see them changing what's in the Bible, modifying it, um, to fit their ends, which is something that has happened over time. Um, yep. So again, historical precedent is there for all of this stuff. And we see all the time, you know, the way propaganda works and the way that the control of information works. And again, movements like QAnon wrap themselves in Christianity, this, this sort of perverted view of it and um, try and, cause they know that people hold certain identities at their core and their religious beliefs are one of them. And that's a way to control people is you tap well, into that. Honestly, it comes back around to the stuff in Texas too. Like I'm not afraid to talk about it because I really think it's asinine because it's like there's a party that actively is against government oversight and is telling women what to do with their bodies. 
constantly and yep. it's it's a religious issue at yep. that point they always front it as a religious issue i uh i had a post on our social media where i said uh that what's the the laws being passed in texas are christo-fascist and i like that term because it truly that's what i see it's this it's this combination of christianity with fascism it's using one to inform the other using one as an excuse for the other yeah and that's what we're seeing uh absolutely um i do want to also say uh if things continue in the way that this book warns we're fucking dead in the way that we're seeing some of this shit play out in america yeah this recording could be played in our trial because james and i are going to be you know first against the wall as they say in this book uh we we would be one of those people hanging from the harvard wall potentially yeah and honestly come get me yeah that's what i have to say to that yeah i mean it's it you have to speak out what you can in hopes that your words and that your message can help prevent that thing from happening and that's what atwood has even said about this book she she didn't intend it to be prophetic she said she wanted it to be an anti-prophecy she wanted to write this book to show people what could happen and to prevent it from happening she wanted this to actively open people's eyes to it and say like this is what you should be avoiding and her hope is that her book can help us avoid this outcome um and I, I, you know, I feel the same way. It's like you have to you have to speak out what you can while it's still allowed. <laughs> well, it's not going to get you killed. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, even in this book, it's, it's like crimes are retroactive, you know, so they're executing doctors and they're they're executing scientists and, you know, I, I assume podcasters uh, yep. <laughs> um, for for their crimes from before the, you know, Gilead took control, which, yeah, I mean. It is what it is. Um, <laughs> we got we to gotta work to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? That's all yes. we can try and do. Um, you know, maybe we'll be able to escape into the sort of guerrilla forces in, out in the woods, and maybe uh, that's how we can we can get away. Um, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, one thing I, I, I don't think she accurately predicted is the Gilead group overthrowing the U.S. government and forming this sort of new Republic of Gilead. Um, well, they tried. Uh, they tried that recently. It didn't well, work out. Yeah, but here's the thing. when the, If this happens, they are going to call themselves America. They are not going to cede the name of America because they are at their core. It, it's nationalism paired with religion, right? It's It's this belief that they are the true Americans. You see it all the time you know, real America, quote unquote, and what that means, right? Um, and of course, they're going to wrap themselves in the flag just as they, you know, are toting the Bible. They're going to do both. And uh, so, yeah, the, the idea that this wouldn't just be America was the one thing that I was like, I don't know. They probably just call themselves America at this point. Um, I get why she did it to kind of make it seem different. But like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, just personally, <laughs> after what yeah. we've seen, I'm like, there's no way they're just going to call themselves America. If they do this. Yeah. And anybody who's against it is going to be labeled an American. So I have plot to read because there's a lot to get into here. But I did want to stop before that and just ask you, you've seen the you've seen the show, never read the book. What was your impression of this novel as a reading experience? Like, what were you expecting, maybe? And then, like, what 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 did you get? What did you think of it in that way? 
I mean, I guess I started to give that answer a little bit. So you've talked about the prose and some of the structure and and the way that it is very poetic. But I also it, it's an affecting story. It's really powerful and it feels so present. It feels like it's something that like unfortunately could happen. And so I think that that brings it a little closer to home. And like I said, all I could think about was was how these these are still social issues we're struggling with today. Yeah. 30 plus years later. For me, I was expecting something that might come off more as um, kind of a sermon or like a moralizing. It wasn't that I actually thought the book was going to be that way, but whenever I know going in that something has such a clear, powerful moral message, I'm always hesitant. I'm like, "Ah, do I really want someone to be sort of moralizing at me and like hit me over the head with a concept, you know, especially if it's like something I already agree with. Like, do I need that? I'm happy to report this book isn't like that. Um, I didn't find it to be that way. And one of the things I I think really helps with that is Alfred in particular, our main character, she is imperfect. She is not a feminist in that sense. Like she doesn't have it all figured out. She admits to her own weakness. We see her getting comfortable in this life as horrific as it is. Ultimately, she's a survivor, and this book is about the things that she has to do to survive um, and in this new society. And, and, and there's sort of a duality throughout for her, uh, of, um, and I think it's even fully lampshaded by the moments where she says, uh, this is, you know, here's what happened. Well, it didn't happen that way. Here's what actually happened. Actually, it didn't happen that way either. And and that sort of nebulousness, that that the way that truth and memory changes over time, and how she recreates things for us for particular reasons, um, we're left not really knowing what the truth is here. Um, and I think that works really well in the written form, in particular. So that part of this book really fascinates me. I wasn't expecting it. Um, that that sort of it's this this exercise and what it means to tell a story like this and and what we can distance of time like if you go read Anne Frank's diary or something like that like the stories left behind and how what you're seeing is not the truth it's some sort of interpretation or recreation or memory of the truth and in doing that it's always a distance right there's always distance so all of that I thought was really fascinating. And then you take it all and you wrap it up in, in some metafiction, which we'll get in here at the end. Um, and I, that all is just fascinating stuff in general to me that I think is really clever um, and works really well in a story like this. Um, and then again, like I, I never felt like I was being, you know, moralized to. It was just like right. a really affecting dystopian book that just happens to be incredibly realistic in the sense that it feels like it could happen it also was just really well written in the sense that it was an engaging read it was never Mm -hmm. boring i was i was very invested in finding out what was going to happen 
Um, so it was more plot oriented than, than maybe I thought it would be. And I mean that in a good way. Like there was a, an interesting plot. I wanted to find out what's going to happen with the commander and her, what's going to happen with this Nick character. Like, is she going to get found out, you know, of Glenn, what's, what's going on with her and, you know, all these different characters. Like I was invested emotionally. I wanted to find out what was going to happen with them. Um, and so in that sense, it was. A, it was just a good book. Like I, I would recommend it to people as an entertaining read, as heavy as it is, and as dark as it is, and as scary as it is. It's also just an entertaining book. Yeah, I mean, there's a you can point to that for the popularity of the show too, right? There's a reason. I think it's just such a good story, and it's so engaging that like you're you're pulled along with it and can't help but like yeah, I can and I can understand kind of coming into a story a little bit jaded and being like you know, is this something that I've experienced before? Is it something similar? Or like you said, is it something that I totally agree with? And, you know, is it for someone else maybe? And uh, yeah, that's not this book. I I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, would highly recommend it. And I think I definitely recommend it to people who have seen the show. It was a uniquely fun experience to like go back and experience it as in this written form, because like I said, so much is there on the page and there's there's some added elements that I think do add some more intrigue to the story. And uh, one other thing I, I want to say, there's a moment in this book, it's like halfway through or so, where the narrator says, if you're a man who's reading this and you've made it this far, you know, I can't remember what she says after that, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I should have written the quote down. But my point is, I immediately was like, oh, I am a man and I've made it this far. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I want to recommend to our, you know, men listeners out there to read this book because there is a societal aversion um, sometimes out there that you have to fight against where uh, you are like, there's like an aversion to reading a book like this. If you're a man, you're like, ah, it's not for me. It's for women. Right. Um, And I I think honestly, like you have to squash that thinking first off and find and find it in yourself when it's there. Um, And I just, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going to convince anybody necessarily, but you know, if you're listening to this and you're a man and you haven't read this book, I think you should. It's, it's really good. It's a good read. It's entertaining. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. Honestly, I did. That's the thing, right? And and that's what stories like this are for is to give you the a unique perspective that you yeah. do need probably, you know? Yeah. And it's just good. It's entertaining. Yeah. Well written. The way that part of the story starts to hint at the fact that it's sort of being told in a post perspective, like it's it's being recited to you as like yeah. a, a tale. It, this is even and, lampshaded um, later on, but yeah, it's like uh, yeah, it, the the narration seems to be removed at some later date, reminiscing back about this time, but only sometimes. Yeah, you know, because most of the time it's like in the present, but then there are times that it because it's it's that whole fluctuation of like what perspective we're in. Well, and she's talking about recreating it and re- what it was like, and, and it's not it's not like happening because a lot of times like third person past will feel like it, it it happened in the past but the past was like moments ago yeah. right that's like a very common way to write third person past that's not how this feels this feels yeah. more removed than that yeah and that's an interesting element too because you kind of it's it starts to get you thinking like is she going to make it through this is yeah. she going to get out and and i think that's yeah. a nice element to to thread in there. and you can play with that right and many writers have over time it's it is it's a it's an interesting technique you can employ for sure um all right i'm going to read some plot after a staged attack that killed the president of the United States and most of Congress, a radical political group called the Sons of Jacob uses theonomic 
ideology to launch a revolution. The United States Constitution is suspended, newspapers are censored, and what was formerly the United States of America is changed into a military dictatorship known as the Republic of Gilead. The new regime moves quickly to consolidate its power, overtaking all religious groups, including traditional Christian denominations. In addition, the regime reorganizes society using a peculiar interpretation of some Old Testament ideas and a new militarized hierarchical model of society and religious fanaticism among its newly created social classes. Above all, the biggest change is the severe limitation of people's rights, especially those of women who are not allowed to read, write, own property, or handle money. Most significantly, women are deprived of control over their own reproductive functions. The story is told in first-person narration by a woman named Offred. In this era of environmental pollution and radiation, she is one of the few remaining fertile women. Therefore, she is forcibly assigned to produce children for the commanders, the ruling class of men, and is known as a handmaid. Apart from the handmaids, other women are classed socially and follow a strict dress code, ranked highest to lowest, the commander's wives in blue, the handmaids in red and white veils around their faces, the ants, who train and indoctrinate the handmaids in brown, the Marthas, who are cooks and maids in green, the Econo wives, the wives of lower-ranking men who handle everything in the domestic sphere in blue, red, and green stripes, and young unmarried girls in white and widows in black. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So this, obviously, this summary is like giving us the world first. But I think it is worth stopping here. We've got the world and we've got the main character and we've got the hierarchy. Um, so we can talk about that, right? Like this is all set up. Now, what's interesting is the book actually very slowly doles out this information to us right. um, in a way that I actually found really engaging. And, and I am I'm such a big fan of when authors can do this, when they can put us in a fully realized world and we have all these questions. Why are things this way? How does this work? What happened? Where are we? When are we? All these questions are not answered directly, except for some of them kind of are over time. And it's very, it's doling out little bits of information. And the mystery surrounding the world keeps us engaged. This mm -hmm. is a thing that is incredibly difficult to do. It seems a lot simpler than it is. Because so yeah. often in manuscripts, I'll see people try to do this. And it's very easy to get that mix wrong and to withhold too much information and make it to where people are confused and confusion in a way that's going to make them bounce off and, and not interested, but actually just confused. And that's never good. And then there's obviously you can go the other direction, way overload people with information. You get that, you know, famous uh, uh, world building drop of exposition that people dislike in so many books, especially certain fantasy novels. People are like, oh, my God, it's so much exposition. So there's there's both sides of this can be can be problematic as a writer. Um, this is a great example of doing it in a way that is really interesting. Um, but I'm also going to say it's not necessarily something that like you'll be able to read and go, oh, I'll just do it like that because it's not going to work yeah. for everything. I didn't. I noticed that as well. And the characters really pull you along for this one because it kind of is able to do both because I think that change in perspective, there's the mystery of the future and the mystery of the past. So no matter what direction she's telling the story in, we're, we're like moving in a way that we're interested in. And the present. Um, yeah. Every bit of information I got, I was like, 
hoarding. I was I was picking apart. I was like, ooh, what does this mean? You know, like I was so into it for that. Like there was a moment where she gets to watch the news. Um, I think it's while they're waiting for the ceremony to begin one night. Um, and the and the wife uh, p- puts on the news and you just get these little flashes of details about what the world's like. And it was so interesting, right? Like I was so into it. And those little glimpses and, and, and one of the things that works so well, Alfred doesn't have the information, right? Like she is restri- restricted from knowing what's going on. Current events are all restricted to her. So she wouldn't know. She would know her past, but to her, her past is not novel. So she she only talks about it when it becomes pertinent. Um, so it's natural in that sense, even though we are really curious, like how did shit all break bad and go this way? Um, and ultimately the answers are really quickly and um, faster than anyone thought possible and how life was just normal and then it wasn't. And that's one of the messages that Margaret Atwood wants this novel to convey. And I think we, we've seen um, is this is a challenge to the idea that it can't happen here, which is an attitude, at least, that is still a problem in our country, I think, because people are unwilling to see just how dangerous this stuff is and how it can happen here. There's sort of a, a this naivete that america is somehow better than this and we it could never happen here whereas i to me it feels like we're on the precipice way more often than we like to think some of the things that really stand out to me too are is the way that at some point people have to question whether it's worth the inconvenience to their life or or is it, if it's not even inconvenience is it worth risking your life for fighting for the right thing and it seems like there are situations where they are not so like her boss yeah at the library has to fire her clearly distraught clearly distraught clearly not happy about anything but it's the law at that point and it's your neck on the line and so if everyone does if everyone goes along with it then things crumble i mean it's it's powerful and it's you know so often you'll see people say things like if you ever wondered what you would have done in nazi germany you know prior prior to hitler's rise when it was starting to happen, like look around cause you're doing it now. Um, and it's the, honestly the answer mostly is nothing. That's what, that's for what most, most people, people did for most is people. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And only thing you can do is try and learn from history, right? Like and try and learn the lessons. And, and honestly, handmaid's tale is an attempt at like a historical text, which we, we see talked about here at the end. It's like, it's like a historical text that she wants us to be able to look at. Um, from the past rather than uh, from the future, right? Like she doesn't want us to have to live through this. She wants us to be able to read about it and avoid it, which is right. so brilliant. Yeah. And the foresight to like kind of know that it's headed that way. These are the dangers, right? Right. Outlined right here. Okay. So let's get into a little bit more. Um, oh, I guess real quick, like of Fred, we, we meet her, right? We meet her in this, this caste system. I was, I guess you already know a lot of this stuff, but I had no idea like where were this stuff was going to take place. And apparently it's going to be, I was like, okay, so we're in, we're basically in a house and she's going to go out and shop. Um, and the house itself was interesting. This garden, um, I, I thought was a, a, a sort of rife for metaphor. We often get lots of descriptions of flowers and sort of natural, the natural germination and pollination and all these different things that are, are likened to um, 
you know, procreation, right? And uh, it, it gives a lot of great comparison points for uh, for Alfred to 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 latch on to when it comes to how she feels as if she is now just at reproductive organs with legs, you know, like that's what they've been yeah. relegated to. Um, uh, yeah. And I kind of wanted to address that too, is the way that that and her sexuality, like the way that she was saying, like the only thing that she felt like, because they all agency is gone. She's has nothing that she feels like she has power over, except the fact that like she can still catch the guards glimpsing at her mm-hmm. figure through her dresses and things like that. And then also the, reproductive element right like the fact that she still has and eventually we get into stuff some stuff with the commander but the way that that gives her power in a way in the society or at least how she she starts to realize that she may be able to manipulate it to still have power yeah i mean this is the kind of thing that like why this book is so rife for analysis and we can barely even scratch the surface of here but like the difference between sexuality as desired by people as people's expressions of their desires right and reproduction and the societal way that reproduction is treated and the role it plays in society and 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 perpetuating uh you know the ruling class right uh or any class but um, my point being that like those two things are obviously if you have a Venn diagram, there's an overlap there, but this book is about how like they're very different and entwined and it's very, it is, it's just complicated to talk about like how she right. does have sexual attraction to men yet. And she feels some of that towards some of the men that we see her get involved with, um, and how she feels conflicted about it and how the society is set up in a way to punish that. Like she's not allowed to feel that Um, it's supposed to just be this like function. She serves the way that that is tied to like anti-pornography and um, being quote unquote, a loose woman um, being promiscuous. um, It's really thoughtfully done the way that those things are linked, right? Like the, the 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 pressure to be pure and the pressure to you know save yourself and all the, all of these things that you hear um how that is a suppression of sexuality which is itself an act of freedom on the part of these women that they no longer have in this book there is a specific part that gave me particular like perspective that i found to be interesting of course troubling but also uh something i hadn't really thought of before and it's the way that she describes after she loses her job that night her husband wants to have sex and the way that she felt however subtle it was a shift in power dynamic in the relationship and the way that she no longer they were no longer in any sort of partnership they didn't belong to each other she almost felt like she belonged to him at that point yeah and that was her perspective on it and i was that's you know that's something that i hadn't as a man ever thought of in those terms and there was there was a line that came at the end of that section where she says something about how she should have asked him about that um and that was particularly like did he like did some part of him like that control um and how he wasn't the one who had had his power stripped away now, she even recognizes that that's not really fair. I mean, they had their child taken away. 
um, because it was sort of deemed illegitimate. Um, and he obviously is like helping her and like trying to flee and like he's on her he's on her team clearly right. Um, but right. ultimately he is not the one being targeted in the way that she is, and I, you know that is appropriate to point out. So it, it's really fascinating. That's one of the things I want to give Margaret Atwood credit for because. I was also a little worried it was going to be it was going to feel like a very anti-man book. I was like, is this going to be just like all about how men are fucking terrible? Um, and like men often are fucking terrible more often than not. I, I, I'm, I feel <laughs> safe saying that, but I like to think that there are men who are not. And I like to think that there is a path forward for men not to be. And I like to see examples of male characters who are good people and who are trying to do the right thing. Um, and I'm, or at least are like nuanced, right? Like not just, not just irre- irredeemable monsters. And I think every male character in this book, um, from commander, Nick, Luke, all of them are written in a way that recognizes their humanity, recognizes the way in which they are an expression of the society that they've created and, you know, obviously the commander is the person who's benefiting from it the most. But even he is sort of written in a sympathetic way at times. Um, so it's just really cleverly done. Yeah, I think it's like a spectrum thing, like different degrees of humanity yeah. are being shown in different men. He's not just story. like, like the, nobody's just a out and out monster that we not not right. the characters that we directly see. The system feels monstrous beyond belief. But the individual men that we are presented with, at least have sides to them, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I feel like the commander is clearly a kind of an awful person with splashes of humanity. Yes. And then we see like Nick maybe is like somewhere in the middle and he's got a little more splashes of humanity than than the commander. And then obviously Luke having probably the most humanity. Yeah. And she even says like, is "Is that just something I was projecting? Like, you know, I think she even questions it herself. And I love all the stuff about Luke because there's one moment where she says... I hold these things all to be true. And she outlines the different fates that could have befallen Luke, um, including being dead face down in a ditch, um, escaping and like becoming a member of the, uh, uh, the resistance or being like trapped in prison and being tortured and having this big beard and, and all this stuff. And she holds all of these truths together at the same time. She's like, these are all true for me at the same time. And she, and she has no way of knowing which one is the actual truth. And that, that sort of playing with reality is so core to this book too. Like, and that's the thing that I did not expect at all. And I really enjoyed was that whole element of like what it means to be, to tell a true story and, and you know, how, if you don't have the information um and it's it's taken away from you all that you're left to do is imagine things you know about her own daughter is the same way and she's kind of like hedging her bets so that when the if the news ever does reach her she's not like too affected by any of the outcomes it's so true right like she also she's like i fully believe that he's dead yet i also fully believe that he's a member of the resistance and i should be on the lookout for some like clever message that he's left for me and like how just like that's so tragic and that's so hard to uh, to to just live that way um and yet it feels so true like uh, it was, you know powerful stuff um let me read some more plot here so offred details her life starting with the her third assignment as the handmaid to a commander 
Interspersed with her narratives of her present-day experiences are flashbacks of her life before and during the beginning of the revolution, including her failed attempt to escape to Canada with her husband and child, her indoctrination into life as a handmaid by the ants, and the escape of her friend Moira from the indoctrination facility. At her new home, she is treated poorly by the commander's wife, a former Christian media personality named Serena Joy, who supported women's dom domesticity and subordinate role well before Gilead was established. To Offred's surprise, the commander requests to see her outside the ceremony, a reproductive ritual obligatory for handmaids and intended to result in conception in the presence of his wife. The two begin an illegal relationship where they play Scrabble, and Offred is allowed to ask favors of him, whether in terms of information or material items. Finally, he gives her lingerie and takes her to a covert, government-run brothel called Jezebel's. Offred unexpectedly encounters Moira there, with her will broken, and she learns that those who are found breaking the law are sent to the colonies to clean up toxic waste or are allowed to work at Jezebel's as punishment. In the days between her visits to the commander, Offred also learns from her former shopping partner, a woman called Offglen, of the Mayday Resistance, an underground network working to overthrow the Republic of Gilead. Not knowing of Offred's criminal acts with her husband, Serena begins to suspect that the commander is infertile and arranges for Offred to begin a covert sexual relationship with Nick, the commander's personal servant. After their initial sexual encounter, Offred and Nick begin to meet on their own initiative as well, with Offred discovering that she enjoys these intimate moments despite memories of her husband, and shares potentially dangerous information about her past with him. However, shortly after, Offglen disappears, reported as a suicide, and Serena finds evidence of the relationship between Offred and the commander. Okay, so that's like a huge chunk of the book, um, but I thought get it all out there and we could talk about it. Let's talk about the indoctrination facility and the ants, right? Um, this is all harrowing stuff. But I think it's really important to note the role in which women are used to subjugate other women. That's something that Atwood was very particular about using because this is an example of things that occurs in these sort of uh, regimes. That men in power use women by giving them little pieces of power like doling it out to them and that can be very attractive and and they can use that to turn women against themselves and we see that in these ants who are pretty despicable throughout right and um and it seems that they're they are fully bought in and, and some women are just true believers it said right like they just fully believe in the cause and then the idea of like the eyes and ears, how like you you have to be so careful about who you're talking to because they could just report on you and get you executed or sent to the colonies. Terrifying stuff. Again, feels very realistic, right? Yeah. Like this idea of, of uh, I think we see it with the wealth inequality in our country right now. And it's like you, you're seeing like the people at the top dole out what seems like lots of money to other people to to do certain things and then it all all the way down to the bottom the people at the bottom are are looked down on by the people who are you know slightly a tier ahead of them slightly a tier ahead of them and yet the big fish at the top like people just kind of are not they don't realize like percentage like what the exponential difference is there and stuff so the people yeah. with power at the top kind of in, in the same way are doling the stuff out and they just don't understand how much power those people at the top have and they'll do anything to hold on to that power Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
these power structures often work the same way, right? Depending on so many different factors. But yeah, and and, and it's so important to get people on your side. And the way you get people on your side is by offering them power that you're going to deny others. And people will take that. People will seize at that, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's brilliantly outlined here. Um, so then we get all this, this this relationship that is, I call, you know, in quotations, I guess, with her and the commander and playing Scrabble with him and the ceremony with, uh, with him and uh, Serena Joy, the wife, and how even Serena Joy, who's pretty awful, she at, a, at different moments feels kind of pity for her and feels mm-hmm. not affection ever, but like she realizes that this isn't necessarily a great setup for her either. I, I did want to comment that this is the most horrifying part. One, I, I know one of, but for, for me, probably the most horrifying is these like ritualistic ceremonies yeah. that they're doing that are so like... It's dark. It's super dark. You know, one of the writing things that I wanted to highlight for that, I, I I could be wrong about this, but when she's describing the first ceremony, she says, uh, you know, the commander fucks her. And it was like, right. oh, shit. And then she says it a bunch of times in a row. Like, the fucking is like this. The fucking is like that. And, like, I don't think the fuck had been said yet in the novel at that point. And I thought it was really powerful to drop the F-bomb and to drop it multiple times in a row for this moment because it really highlighted, like, the obscenity that's taking place. Um, And, you know, so powerfully written in that way, I I think really smartly done. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole thing is just bizarre and awful. Um, And then, yeah, this weird relationship comes up it, playing scrabble is really interesting right because it's like a game that represents reading and represents the thing that is illegal to her i, I even noticed mm-hmm. like early on it felt like she was playing words that felt very thematically important um yep uh so i thought that was clever um and then yeah uh then this whole thing with jezebels which i i guess i should have expected but came as kind of a, a shock to me um where he sneaks her into this club and it's like a it kind of feels like a country club right um where other commanders go no wives are allowed and it's basically just a brothel yeah he gives her like a bracelet that like identifies her as like a rental or something clearly they like have built a power structure where they can go do stuff like this and i think it's definitely commenting on things that we currently see too like you said country clubs like i think of some of the scandals we've heard we've heard about with people who are wealthy, who will, who will find ways for things like this to go right. on, you know? And the inherent hypo- hypocrisy that we see in these situations, right? Like, and, oh, and totally. just like, yeah. and how power time and again, you see how it plays out once people have the power that they've been seeking after, right? Like they do the things that they make illegal for everyone else. That's always what happens. Um, so of course yeah. there's, there's sort of a sex work thing going on, even though they've made it illegal everywhere else and for everybody else. Yep. Um, it's all about limit limiting, you know, and, and well, restricting yeah. and, and making it so it's only them. Yeah. yeah. Everyone else has to suppress all sexual urges in every way. And then these people at the top have found ways to like create it. Yeah. Well, for them, it's like, 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 well, it, you know, thing. it's it's natural. It's human or whatever. Just for them, though. No, but for no one else. Um, there's even a, I mean, there's a moment where she asks, asks him, uh, the commander, like who all these people are or something like who who are all these. And, and he he starts talking about the men. And then she's like, no, 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 I mean the women. And he's like, oh, okay. And I just thought that was like 
cleverly done because like of course he's not gonna he doesn't consider them people right. and as much as she I, I thought it was remarkable how often she gives a sympathetic lens to the things that the commander are, is doing how he is like unhappy in his marriage he wants someone to be interested in him he wants to have a conversation he wants to play scrabble you know things like this he wants he um he wants affection when he goes when he takes her to the brothel and they and he goes to have sex with her like he wants it to be this like love making and then that's not possible for her in this situation because right. because of the dynamic and Ultimately, I think it's like showing how there's an emptiness inherent to this that no matter what is going to be present. Um, And I don't know. It's like it is kind of sympathetic towards the commander, but like he is an instrument of this and he is in power here. And even if things aren't perfect for him, like it's really hard to feel sympathy for him. But I don't know. I, I just thought it was really telling that she was still able to find some sort of sympathy it felt like or 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 because or, ultimately i guess he's still human right like that that's the the thing is like this he's still a, a man and she talks about how maybe she would have liked him before all of this and um he seems like somewhat friendly towards her um he's he can be kind of he can be kind of charming right like there's a certain appeal um but she recognizes even in herself how that doesn't change anything and how he could still have her killed. And she says, you know, I'm a whim to him. And she has to always remember that. One of the characters I think we have to talk about too is Moira and the relationship that Moira has to Alfred and what she represents for her because she was this fighter Mm -hmm. who uh, found a way to escape and all, all of this. And then she finds her here broken yeah and uh like what that does to someone like offred who was kind of always envisioning and she was hopeful for her friend moira Mm -hmm. yeah it's tragic too right like to see her sort of broken and having given up and she even says like i don't know what happened to her after that i never saw her again uh which was tragic and it's like she may have died she may not have i don't know um and yeah i mean moira and like her mother is the same way it's these these women who seem almost aspirational right like but but also like she's afraid to to be like them because she recognizes the consequences that face them and she's not she says like you know i'm not willing to give up my life and she even says like as soon as they come to um torture me or to threaten me or to threaten the people that i care about i'm gonna break because I'm not I'm not brave in that way. And and again, that's one of these things that really um makes me like Alfred as a character. Is she's not this perfect hero. She's just a person, she's a survivor. And she's talking about all the things she has to do to survive. Um let's talk about Nick a little bit because Nick Nick is a mysterious character. I thought for the longest time he was going to be full full-blown traitor. I was like this guy is going to turn and I was surprised that it didn't go that way. And especially there was a moment when he drops her off uh, at the Jezebel's and he looks like disappointed in her. And I was like, oh, man, mm-hmm. you got to watch Nick. He's going to be like possessive. And he was attracted to this pure version of you. And now that you have gone to Jezebel's, he's going to view you as impure. And I thought he was going to turn him in. But 
the book kind of implies that Nick maybe saves her. Maybe, I say, because we don't actually know the fate of our main character here at the end, but um, maybe Nick saves her. Maybe Nick actually puts her in contact with this resistance group. Yeah. So that's the intriguing thing, right? Is like the commander, you, you can't you can't really tell like who's on her side and who's not. And honestly, I think people are switching sides all the time yeah. when, when it's convenient for them. And that's one of the, the the pieces of intrigue that like continues throughout and who she trusts information with and who she's willing to stand up to tends to be, uh, you know, you're scared for her, but you're also like kind of like, fuck yeah, in those moments when she stands up to someone or, you know, she starts standing up to the commander a lot and telling him how what she wants and, you know, what like and and it seems like she's starting to like get some more agency for herself so and her telling the secrets in in general to to nick is like kind of scary but it's also like is this someone who who's actually there oh yeah i was so worried when she's like sharing like details about may day and like all the people she's been in i'm like oh god don't tell that to nick you know it, it doesn't end up seeming to be the problem but yeah i mean i was worried um, there's a couple of quotes that I have written down and I haven't touched on yet. So I'm going to talk about one of them now. Um, there is more than one kind of freedom, freedom to, and freedom from in the days of anarchy, it was freedom to now you are being given freedom from don't underrate it. I believe this was by one of the, one of the ants and this idea of freedom to, and freedom from is I think central to this book, right? Like it is the, what we we have seen so much of the push pull between personal freedom to do things liber- to be you know free to take actions freedom of speech freedom to, of movement freedom of, to control your body this sort of freedom and then freedom from is your freedom from danger your freedom from being attacked your freedom from its security right um and how they both both things can be sort of weaponized and how so much of what goes into the handmaiden situation is this idea that men are inherently sexual you know cr- beings who have this sort of like capability of rape uh within them and how we get this victim blaming, right? Like that it's, it's, it's even sort of ceremonialized in in this like moment where they're all yelling at this woman that it was her fault when cause she got raped. And it's like, it's all about how you, what, what, what women do to deserve what happens to them. It's all victim blaming. Right. And you see this thinking a lot and um, it's sort of outlining how, their restrictions that have been placed on them is ostensibly for their protection. It's looking at it and saying, well, we're going to protect you from these things happening. And the way we're going to protect you from happening is we're going to remove temptation. We're going to make you cover yourself from head to toe. You know, we're going to, we're going to restrict your movements, restrict your ability to do all these things. And that's going to protect you. You should be happy for this. Um, And just how, I don't know. It's just really scary because you see this thinking all the time. Um, instead of, of course, policing the men who do the thing, uh, you know, it's it's just like fucking frustrating. Yeah. You know, there's a part that it, that is in the story that has happened in the past, too. And it's like they're asking, like, why this woman was like raped by a bunch of people. Yeah, she was like, that's I think that's what I was talking about. That part. Yeah. 
and they they say like you know they ask like whose fault was this and all in unison all the handmaids are like she was asking for it yeah. or whatever bullshit they have and and like it's not that subtle but it's extremely effective because like it does happen mm-hmm. right historically like that has been the case where people say people will say this and it's like in what world you know we hear it all the time with like uh, serial killers and like rapes that have happened and stuff where, where people will say like what was she wearing she shouldn't be out alone after she yeah, shouldn't yeah, be yeah, out yeah. alone and it's like taking away their agency to walk around at night alone yep. because what because there's psychotic men who should probably be the ones who aren't allowed to go walk out at alone at night and yeah. stuff you know yeah like you said policing the men yeah there's yeah i mean that's a whole huge topic that <laughs> we don't have time to get into but yeah i mean It's very sad and very true. All right, so here's the final bit of summary. Offred tells Nick that she thinks she's pregnant. Shortly afterward, men arrive at the house wearing the uniform of the secret police, the Eyes of God, known informally as the Eyes, to take her away. As she is led to a waiting van, Nick tells her to trust him and go with the men. It is unclear whether the men are actually Eyes or members of the Mayday Resistance. Offred is still unsure if Nick is a member of, of Mayday or an eye posing as one, and does not know if leaving will result in her escape or her capture. Ultimately, she enters the van with her future uncertain. The novel concludes with a metafictional epilogue, described as a partial transcript of an international historical association conference taking place in the year 2195. The keynote speaker explains that Offred's account of the events of the novel was recorded onto cassette tapes, later found and transcribed by historians studying what is then called the Gilead period. Okay, totally did not expect that change at the end there, but let's let's finish up our story, uh, it, you know, with what actually happens with Offred because there is a huge amount of ambiguity, right? Like she's taken, and again, the duality of she could be getting led to her death, she could be getting led to salvation, some in between we don't know yeah i actually love that the ending um there's also ambiguity with the fact that like is she is she definitely pregnant i unclear he uh, you know she she seems to think she is but i don't think it's confirmed she feels like she's pregnant right like yeah so uh, another uh, there's a lot of she doesn't know who the father is for sure so right everything is so unknown and very ripe for a season two. Oh boy! Like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can. I mean, I can understand I, I, people. I, I, we've stated on the podcast many times ambiguity at the end of stories. To me, you know, asks for more conversation to be had around it, yeah. and more interpretation, which I think always is amazing. But I can. I could see people walking away being like, "Oh man, I need more." Like, what happened? You know, I think the epilogue gives some details on on what went on, and we can kind of fill in the blanks ourselves but yeah there's there's a lot going on there at the end yeah so one thing i wanted to talk about was this book made me think a lot about another book we've read on this podcast um and i wonder if you can i wonder if you had any similar thoughts did this this remind you of any particular novel we've covered um the only one that sticks out to me is children of men Children of Men by P.D. james yeah that was my one uh i wrote down i was like when did this book so i went and looked it up um, Children of Men was written seven years after this novel. Gotcha. And Children of Men is about what happens to society when there are no more children being born. Um, and I just thought it was interesting, right? That it's like 
a similar problem is happening here in that fertility rates have gone down, but they're not gone. And how we see some similar forces, but it's al- it's like almost worse in this sense, right? Like it, it, because it becomes like there's a moment where literally she identifies herself as a national resource and her womb is a natural national resource. And like how just repeatedly she thinks of herself as an object because that's how this society treats her um, and how scarcity in that sense somewhat leads to this. I don't know. It, it, I, I think these two, those two books compared to each other is an interesting. I, I think that there was definitely some conversation between the two being had. I think that yeah. you read something like this and you think like, you know, what would be a great for another interesting story that has plenty to say about other topics yeah. would be for it to be like completely down. And, and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of similar situations, but also very different stories. So ultimately yeah. not yeah, really different that they're um, stealing from but, each other or anything. Yeah, no, 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 not it's inspiration. I think if anything, but who knows? Maybe P.D. James never read this book. I don't know. Yeah. But it's just fascinating that some similar topics were being talked about. One line I also really loved. Uh, again, I have to outline a few lines here. Um, from each according to her ability, to each according to his needs, um, which is this perfectly awful bastardization of this like line from Marxism. Um, which is it has been repurposed and changed and she says it and she, i think she even says like i think this is from the bible of course it's not <laughs> um but it's been told to her as as, as scripture right um and, and it, it just shows like what you were talking about before how like the people who control that information can tell you whatever the fuck they want and and try and convince you of it um and we just see it see it here um and yeah i mean that that little twist her ability to his needs. It's just so smart. Yeah. Another moment I wanted to highlight when Moira's story is talked about um, and she's outlining like what happened with that. She says she had set herself loose. She was a loose woman. And I loved that reframing of the phrase loose woman to being someone who is, had set herself loose and was free. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know. I just think that kind of stuff is so powerful. And like, there's so many of these moments in this book um, that are just like brilliantly written. Oh, I forgot to say it earlier. I, the only Atwood I think I've had exposure to was I think I read some of her poetry in um, a class I was in, but I could not remember what poem. And I tried like doing some quick Googling and I couldn't find it. Um, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've read some of her poetry. I'd never read any of her fiction though. Anyway. Yeah. Very clever stuff with the whole wordplay there. Okay, so I think we just got to... I mean, there's so much we got to skip over here, but we're running out of time. So let's talk about the ending. Um, It gets super metafiction. All of a sudden, flash forward to 2195. You have this professor talking about these tapes that he's found, these writings, these... um, They were like behind a wall, and and the the fate of the narrator is unknown. And there's this distance, right? Like this... It's it's they're kind of cracking jokes. It's very removed. It's very um, flippant almost. And it, and it feels like society has returned to a state where they don't think this sort of thing can happen again. Um, and and th- I think that is a key sort of um, message here. And then also just, yeah, like how ac- academic study can sometimes maybe uh, be removed, removed. from yeah. the sort of real tragedy uh, and and you can that distance can be dehumanizing almost 
yeah it was pretty bonkers when they jumped ahead like 100 years or whatever i was i couldn't believe that that was the case this is one of the wildest parts in the audiobook by the way because um there's like a crowd and like each person who raises their hands is a different speaker and uh the 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 professor is somebody different which i think by the way the whole book is read by claire danes which is cool um so it's just a really well done like if you if you like just well done audiobooks i recommend this one yeah uh yeah i thought it was pretty wild to to go to this place but i did like what you said about like society tends to forget and i feel like we've seen some of this with like um people who are eager to go to war and that sort of stuff when there hasn't been wars for a little while and like they just don't understand the atrocities and stuff it's the same kind of thing with um even like students nowadays like like um learning about Anne Frank like you mentioned Anne Frank earlier yeah like like how that feels so removed it feels like history at that point so it's not really it's something that happened it's not something that can't happen yeah I mean and there there's lessons throughout but then you know yeah it, it also like it lends a sense of realism to this like it makes it feel like a historical document right and I like that too it, it sort of it situates us in a weird spot because we are, of course, also reading the same thing. And I don't know. It's that that the, what is the nature of truth? What can be learned from from reading survivor stories, um, I think, is all being engaged with. And I don't know the answer to it, but um, it's something I'm going to be thinking about a lot when I when I do watch this TV series, because I'm really fascinated to see what they what they just sort of pin down as like this is the facts versus what they leave as ambiguous because I, I my sense is that for TV you're gonna have to make some decisions about what is true and what isn't um I'll be just get really curious to see how they handle that I know you probably have a sense of that but again I haven't seen any of the series so I, I have no idea I'm really excited to get your take on it yeah I mean I enjoy the show so um and, yeah. and I think that like I said there's a reason why it blew up it's because it's great storytelling with a great uh, a great vision. Yeah. behind the show um there was also a moment in this book where actually you know what it was at the end it was in that inter- this sort of like not interview just like an afterward by atwood that i heard and she said every recorded story implies a future reader an act of hope i like that a lot um and i really liked that too yeah. right like that's something that um legacy right that's yeah. that's what like what we leave behind ultimately right why tell stories why record things and you see it throughout history people taking the effort to record it and of course it's an act of hope because if you truly thought no one would ever read it like you probably wouldn't do it Um, yeah why would you dedicate blood sweat and tears to something that no one would ever i mean of course there's the passion of it but but at the same time like there's some 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 part of you feels like someone may eventually see it yeah um, or could yeah all right, so here we are at the end of the book. Um, we're going to be tackling the series next. I did see that there was another adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale made in 1999, a film. Um, oh. So that could potentially be something if we can find. Uh, could be a bonus uh, episode. Um, very interesting. I'm very excited to see what is done with this adaptation um if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you used and don't forget um we would love to have you send us in uh those those things i talked about at the start um you know how you've changed and how your life has changed since you've been listening and uh, a favorite moment or favorite episode 
um, send those in to inktofilm at gmail.com. And Luke mentioned bonus episodes. And if you wanted to get access to those bonus episodes, you could check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We put out uh, at least one bonus episode monthly for just $2 a month. So consider checking that out. And there's a chance that it will end up doing the Handmaid's Tale at some point, the, yeah. the film that Luke just mentioned. Yeah, or, or something else. Um, we just did one on The NeverEnding Story 2, um, yeah. which was a pretty bad movie um but we 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 found a way to talk about you could, if you want to hear us in pain that could be interesting to you <laughs> um yep. yeah we'd love to have you on there and check out our social media instagram facebook and twitter all of those at ink to film and thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music okay thank you all for joining us it was an experience here you know it's it's a heavy story but yeah. I think it's, you know, as we've both said, I think it's a story worthy of having having been read. And now yeah. we're going to go to watch it. Yeah. And a- every podcast episode recorded is recorded in hope of a listener. <laughs> right. <laughs> of some future listener. <laughs> in the hope that it won't be used at our trial. Like you mentioned. Yeah. Earlier. Let's hope that we don't have to listen to this at some future trial. Uh, all right. Uh, until next time. Keep adapting. <laughs>